Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host, Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or RO, is a community of wellbeing managers from organizations around the globe. At RO, we develop you as a wellbeing leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace wellbeing solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving wellbeing in your workplace, professional development is key. These discussions on workplace wellbeing are designed to inspire, share ideas, and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. The interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing Wednesday webinars. Take a deep dive on long COVID, hidden disabilities, and chronic illnesses and how workplaces can rethink work and be more supportive. Invisible or hidden disabilities are disabilities that are not immediately apparent. They are typically chronic illnesses that impact day-to-day living. As many as one in 10 of us could have one. They range from learning differences, deafness, autism, traumatic brain injury, diabetes, ADHD, fibromyalgia, arthritis, and many more. With long COVID increasing, Wellbeing managers are going to need to understand and plan for this emerging issue. I also have fibromyalgia, so this is a topic I feel strongly about. I'm joined by UK-based disability advocate and author Ted Smith. Ted is the author of Hidden Disabilities and Conditions, Creating an Inclusive Workplace. Together, we discuss chronic illness management and how that impacts well-being in the workplace. I started off life as a science student, uh, but got involved with the Students' Union, uh, fired one of the bar staff for stealing because I actually saw her taking some money from the till, um, ended up in what in this country is called an industrial tribunal or employment tribunal uh, to defend the action of firing her, and then learned all about human resources, the, the law and the systems and processes. So I worked for mostly pharma and biotech companies, but also um, a medical research council and the Wellcome Trust, uh, where I met Sarah, uh, who's on the call today. Um, and during that time, I've worked in human resources roles all the way through, you know, to including at Glaxo, uh, running a team of about 200 HR people that worked for me, covering the whole of the the, uh, the globe uh, in terms of the responsibilities. Um, just before COVID, great timing, I decided this was my moment to start off as a consultant. So uh, I took the, the sort of bold steps and all those bits and pieces. COVID hit and then there wasn't any consulting work. And when I was um, commuting, I'd pulled together a blog about um commuting on the train, which people apparently thought was quite funny. So I published that. And having got the confidence to do that, given that my school teachers had told me to stick to science because I was useless at humanities, um, I then went on to go, right, I need to write the book that I've always wanted to write, which is for human resources people. And it's about practical stuff related to HR. In that, I put a bit about someone who was blind. I put something about someone who's deaf. I put something about someone who um, had uh, ADHD and another section about autism. And it was fascinating to me that as the book started to move around and get sold, lots of people were saying, why didn't you mention menopause? Why didn't you put fibroids in? Why didn't you put um, heart conditions in? What about cancer, Ted? You could have covered a bit more. And it got me thinking that actually, and in particular around hidden disabilities, 
that there was very little of practical use out and about. So I started interviewing some of those people who were saying, why haven't you done fibroids? And I would talk to them about fibroids. And then they would see the chapter I'd written, like it, and got got in touch with other people. And before I knew it, I'd interviewed about 75 people and I had 65 conditions and I produced the book. So that book covers lots of different hidden disabilities. Now, I want to just pick up one thing, Sarah, if if that's okay with you. Um, I I would say the other one was Sarah Mason at Wellcome Trust, not Sarah McGuinness. But it is just to say the, the most staggering thing for me in the UK is that there are one in five people who have a disability. But I'm even more staggered when I look at your uh, Office for Disability Issues in New Zealand, where they're quoting one in four people having a physical sensory uh, learning, mental health or other impairment. And when you look at it, it's only one in 10 that actually have a wheelchair. So what that means is all of these people, a quarter of the people in, in, uh, in the society, and a lot of those, according to your Office for, the, for Statistics, are in the workplace have a hidden disability, many of whom will never have talked to you about. And that's how I got involved, Sarah, was to, to, to go, we need to start getting this out and talked about in the same way that mental health has been taking off, in the same way that 20 years ago, no one wanted to even mention that they were gay, for example, um, and now are beginning to feel a bit more able to do that. It's probably a... That's so long we do not. Yeah, no, no, wonderful. And look, it's probably a good place to ask you know when we are talking about hidden disabilities it was great because you mentioned quite a few different ones there there from say a physical illness like cancer to ADHD um, sort of neurodiversity type issues hidden disability seems to do a very big category so is there an easy definition we can give for this for hidden disabilities there's Mm. no easy no there's no easy definition other than that the individual has something inside of them Um, that affects or has the potential to affect their performance at work. Because I'm looking at this in terms of a creative work environment, as opposed to just thinking about the home environment. Um, And uh, it affects people in different ways. So clearly, if you are blind, you have an impact that everybody can understand or start to try and understand quite fast. But if you've got something like fibroids, Nobody can see that you've got fibroids, but you know that it takes a lot of the energy out of you, that there are times when you're um, uh, going to have very heavy periods, sometimes without little notice. Uh, It can lead sometimes to other effects like constipation, brain fog, headaches, uh, nausea. Um, And these are things that are hidden to everybody else. So unless you've disclosed and talked about it, people won't understand why you're sometimes coming in late, sometimes having days off, uh, irregular pattern of days off and things. So it's it's about trying to help people talk about this, understand it, um, educate people around it so that more and more people can be tolerant of this and then help make the workplace um, as, um, as inclusive as possible, I think is the simplest way of saying it. Mm. And in some of your interviews, what did you find were the, the sort of stigma or myths that people were up against if they did disclose? Or what were some of the challenges or barriers they were worried about if they did disclose about their hidden conditions? In fact, I would say probably a quarter of the people that I talked to were never going to disclose. And they, they, they had the following reasons. The first is that 
they were really concerned that it would put a block on their career. So I'll never get a promotion. I'll struggle to find uh, any further opportunities at this place. If they know about this, they'll be nice about it. They'll be kind. They'll be supportive, but they won't give me the opportunity to uh, to progress in the future. So that was the single biggest one. Um, the other uh, one that I heard quite often was, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want everyone always asking me how I am and checking in with me because, Ted, that's exhausting in its own right. Um, so I'd much rather just keep it quiet, get on with it, soldier on and sort myself out. Um, so these are quite big obstacles and, and you know, understandably, people um, aren't they go, therefore going to disclose that easily. Having said that, some of the people who had disclosed or uh, had chosen right from the word go off in an interview to talk about it. They had a, um, a very good experience. They had very receptive um, people helping them. And I think the human instinct is to is when someone tells you something like this, it's to be supportive. So most of them that, that had disclosed had found they'd had a good experience. Mm. And I was interested in your book, you talked about, say, even, you know, it begins right at the interview stage. And you talked about in the book, some of the different things that you had implemented to make sure people felt included and supported. Perhaps you could share some of those. Maybe the simplest is when you're just thinking about running the advert. And in the same way that people started off by saying, you know, we're equally interested in people of either sex, that goes back, say, 20, 30 years, that starts to happen to try and encourage more women in some areas, more men in others. Nowadays, it's about saying that we are genuinely interested in hearing from people who want to come and join us who've got a disability in the same way that we would want to see somebody who may have a different sexual orientation from hetero. So it's it's about being inclusive and saying this is what we're doing and this is the kind of thing that we can do to help and support people. And then right from that first step, it's to just say, if someone does disclose that they have a, a disability or a hidden disability, to say, not assume that you know what it is that you need to do to help them, but to instantly go into um, listening mode and to just say open, simple things like, thank you for telling us uh, that you have this condition. Uh, how can we make it as easy as possible for you to shine an interview, to have a great interview? What's the best way of doing that? And some of the people, uh, and they're referenced uh, in some of those sections that, that you'll have looked at, Sarah, they'll say things like, actually, I'm not at my best in the morning. It'd be great if, if I could have my interview in the afternoon. Um, for somebody who maybe has dyspraxia or dyslexia, it might be, could you let me know some of the questions in advance? I know the rough idea to be thinking about. Um, for somebody who, say, is autistic, they might just want to um, have the opportunity to come and see the interview room the day before, just to be able to have a look around and get comfortable with the environment and be able to say things like, actually, there's a, there's a really an aggravating noise from the fan heater in here. Is there any chance to go somewhere else? Because I think what you want is for those people to be able to give their very best. And then, of course, from that moment on, um, you're showing that you're listening, caring, helping, supporting that person. And you need to do the same, maybe involving the IT department, the facilities team, um, once they uh, get through that interview process and join. The other key bits are to think about if any of you are running tests, is it, is it fair 
the test that you're using and operating. So, for example, um, a simple, the simplest test I know is, oh, we, we always have the interviews on the top floor, Ted, and we walk the candidate up the stairs because we want to see if they're fit. And I'm going, for an accounting role? Where's this come from? And, and you find out it stems from 20 or 30 years ago. You know, so just the process of saying, would you like to go upstairs or would you prefer the lift? For somebody who has some of these hidden disabilities, it could mean the difference between them having lots of energy left for the interview as opposed to none. And that's going to apply in their working life as well. So loads of things we can be thinking about. I've mm. just touched on the first few. That's awesome. And actually interesting you say that because one of the things I've found with my fibro, for example, is that I take a, a drug overnight that amitriptyline that helps me with the sleeping and it reduces the inflammation and pain. Um, and so it does me know, funnily enough, that I, I can't do those red eye flights anymore for traveling. And it's it's been quite heartening how many organizations I say to you now if we go to do a presentation, I say, look, I, I, I can't get a red eye flight. Like, you know, I've had a drug overnight. I'm just not yeah. going to be able to do it. And they're really fine about it and they're really accommodating. And I think that shows how much we're, we're changing around some of those stigmas. Um, but I did just want to, to lead to one of the things that I did find quite interesting in the book as well, which was that you said fatigue was the most common issue. And I was thinking about this from a health and safety. You know, we often talk about fatigue as a health and safety risk. But I guess if we're actually saying, well, perhaps if you've got so many people in your organization that have a hidden condition, perhaps fatigue is a bigger issue than we're actually dealing with. If you look at some of the things that we might naturally go, oh, well, here's the, here's the remedies for that. Actually, it's a much bigger, more complex picture. And I was interested yeah. in your perspective on that. Yeah, I, th I think fatigue kept coming up, um, as did brain fog. I think that's the other one. Um, and, and they're both often very much linked together. Um, but in terms of fatigue, it, it's, it may be simple if you're thinking about people who are working in an office to start off with, that, oh, we can surely we can fix that by just making sure that people have the right breaks. But if they're in an open plan office, they'll be feeling under pressure not to keep having breaks or not to disappear from their workplace for too, too long a time. So they'll, they'll push on and try and do their, their very best. Obviously, if they're switching between um, teams or groups and they're having to drive or walk, uh, that fatigue can lead to them not making good decisions. Or if they're driving from one part of an organisation to another, maybe even to uh, be at risk of having an accident. So I think it's something that uh, when you have a disclosure and someone tells you that they have a, a disability or a disability, it's to, again, just to say, and tell me a little bit about how it impacts you and your working life, listen all the time, keep pr prompting and asking, finding out, and then saying, Right, we want this to be a safe environment for you. We want this to be the best place where you can make the most of your work. What can we do to flex and work around it? And in the same way that fatigue is one of the things that's mentioned most, the, the, the answer um, that most people talk about and plead for in some organisations is then flexible um, working. And some of the very best examples of flexible working I found were actually amongst those groups and amongst those with, who are neurodivergent. Um, and this is the thought that actually, you know, if it's someone who's, say, ADHD or manic depressive or whatever, they might be on a right downer on a Monday or Tuesday. What is the point in forcing them to continue to sit at their desk and try and work through their issue or their fibromyalgia when they're having an off day or, um, uh, or lupus when they're having a right down day? What's the point in forcing them to do that when actually they've asked you for flexibility and they've said, 
do you know what? I'd rather just be able to message you as my line manager and say, today's a write-off. It, I know it's Tuesday, but it's a write-off. And are you all right if I do something and do some catch-up in the evenings and the rest of the week, or maybe even come in on Saturday morning if there's something where I need the works machinery, et cetera, to do it? And those organisations, they're, they're highlighted by those people as just being absolutely fabulous in terms of being genuinely inclusive and making them feel like they're a real part of it. And just before you all think, oh, well, it's only going to be about specific things, remember that the vast majority of women at some point go through menopause and struggle with it and have all sorts of hormonal impacts and effects, many of which include things like brain fog um, and fatigue that we've just been talking about. So the flexibility that you can give to the whole workforce is really as important. And, and I know that that doesn't work well when you've got people um, on the in the service sector who are having to fill specific hours that a, a reception is open or whatever. But we still have to think our way around that to make it as easy as possible for them. Mm. And menopause is a really interesting one. I see there's um, increasing research come out even in the sports sector about training elite athletes and actually looking at, you know, women and hormones and um, their menstrual cycle, realising that, you know, that there are different times when it peak, they're at peak performance and other times when it's actually better to be doing more mechanical things or restorative type training, which if we take that yeah. same idea, I mean, it's really great. We're starting to see a real emphasis on that in the research, but we come to hidden disabilities. Obviously, there are some that are starting to get more light and more shine on them. What are the ones that you think are, are missing that we're not having conversation about that are still really hidden? I think they are the neurodivergent uh, folk. The, the, uh, and, and often um, it is that the, those people that feel most worried or most concerned about disclosing or talking about uh, the, the issue that they have. Um, now, it may well be different in New Zealand, but in the UK, for example, a really big issue is the number of people who are um, diagnosed late in life as ADHD. So what's happening is that the school systems now are alert to the idea that there may be children with ADHD that will need specific help and support. When they're doing the diagnosis, they interview the parents and often they will pick up the fact that the parent is ADHD that's often the first time that the parent has known that or found out about it. And then it starts to put into place why things haven't been going right at work. But even then, this is where I'm coming back to your, your point, that person doesn't feel confident about going and saying to their employer, I'm ADHD, because they're worried about all the various repercussions. So again, we're trying to start to work on reducing the stigma of this in the same way that we are trying to reduce the stigma of other mental health issues, particularly things around uh, depression, etc., so that people can be more open about it and then they can suddenly find that people will be really supportive. And with ADHD, one of the things that keeps coming up at the moment is where people do disclose, they find out that their line manager has a cousin, an aunt, a daughter that's ADHD. It is far more prevalent than I think anyone realises. And the empathy and sympathy is there in bucket loads the moment that's triggered. Mm. And that's actually a good segue into talking about leaders and managers. And so what are you finding when you go in as a consultant or a coach? What are some of the conversations you're finding you're having with leaders and line managers around how to support those with a hidden condition? I think the first thing is that it's just about education. They're just 
the, just the statistics are surprising to them because the vast majority of line managers just think of disability as being a white stick, um, a hearing loop or a wheelchair. And, and when you say that's a tiny proportion of the number of people who have a disability in the workforce, they're they sort of askance um, and, and really don't understand the depth or the fact that a lot of the people in their team might well be hiding something or may well be struggling with that. So the, I think the biggest single starter point is just education. So it's having people talking about these things, having societies coming and, and presenting and giving people the opportunity to find out more about these hidden but it also not forgetting um, that actually we still need to be a bit more clever about how we handle someone who's partially sighted or who's um, deaf in the workplace. There are more and more technological solutions, but lots of people, again, line managers aren't aware of them or IT departments are afraid of them because they're worried that it'll have an impact on their security if they allow, for example, the blind person to bring their own laptop in and use it. So we have to keep working at these things and helping people see that there are important things that they can do to help make that an inclusive environment. Mm. And it really strikes me as, you know, if we come back to the whole thing with well-being, you know, we, well-being often gets a bad name for focusing on little shiny initiatives and things that are short-lived. And, you know, even if we look at mental health, for example, it's easy, easy to wear a T-shirt on a particular day and say, oh, we do this thing, we support this. But actually what you're talking about is some really fundamental ways and how we work, how we design work, how we deliver work or make work, you know, available to do. So what are you finding if, you, if you're up against or talking to senior leaders, you know, what's some of the pushback? Do you get pushback and, or what's some of the challenges that you find in workplaces? But actually, this is the moment, I think, for me to speak up in favour of COVID. Um, it, the one decent thing that COVID has done um, in my sphere within and of course that's largely within the UK and some parts of Europe at the moment in terms of where I'm working um, it has helped a lot of quite senior line managers to understand that uh, people don't have to be chained to their desk to be productive they don't have to be under a whip to be productive um, so a lot of those people were you know the ones who just three years ago were saying no I, I want everybody in. I want them present at the desk. It's absolutely essential. They're always there and ready for any kind of meeting that I need to have with them. And that they'll, you know, once we're seeing what they're doing, we know that they're working hard, etc. And the beauty of this is that what COVID will leave as a lasting legacy is that line managers now understand that people can work effectively from home, that they um, sometimes need additional support to be able to make it possible, that sometimes they have to be forgiving because of things like childcare or illness getting in the way, but that it can be absolutely brilliant. Now, in turn, what that means is that now when we're starting to say there are people with hidden disabilities or disabilities that are seen uh, that need additional help and support, and sometimes that help and support can be saying, you know, if your fibroids are really playing up and you are bleeding heavily, why would someone force you to have to either commit to being sick for the whole day or come into work? And it's very can be really embarrassing coming into work in those circumstances when you could work from home, be two minutes from your nearest toilet at any moment. Same with someone with IBS or um, some other bowel-related um, issue. 
why why do you force them to go on public transport or in a car all the way into work when they're having a bad day um to then be really scared about can I make it to the toilet in time will there be somebody in that cubicle when I get there when you could have them working from home you know so I think productivity is rising now as we as we're more flexible and people are being a little bit more open so the IBS one in particular um, this woman that I was talking to her life's been literally revolutionized um, it's so much better because she can just say you know, quick text in the morning to her boss, it's a bad one today. And then she just gets on and does work from home. And then as soon as she's able to, she's in, in the office and they're doing their sort of joint meetings and 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 uh, getting back to normal working life again. Mm. And I can imagine, you know, that, that most managers would understand that. In the back of my head, I can think of some managers I would have come across in my career who would go, oh, now I have this team and she's got this problem and he's got that problem and it's really hard to manage and they all have different needs and how am I supposed to manage that and still get something delivered? And what would be your response to that? Stand or sit in the shoes of the person. Um, so one of the, the the little tricks that I've been doing is to, to talk them through the the, th- the, the things that are most closely related to their understanding of life. So, for example, this might sound crass, but most line managers at some point have drunk too much alcohol or taken a drug and been under the influence of it. And if you can talk to them about how they felt, the fact that they just had a really sore head, that their eyes were swollen, that they were struggling to even speak, and you go, that's what it's like for this person with this particular hidden disability or find some other mechanism like that. You can start to get under their skin in terms of understanding they are just one step away. They're just one disease away. They're just one journey in a bus from catching a disease that leaves them in that state. And why wouldn't they want to be helpful and supportive to somebody who's in the organization that needs that extra bit of help when it can mean that they are ultimately far more productive? And and I take it down to a much simpler scale as well. There are lots of people in the workforce uh, of every organization that are quite timid and quite shy. Um, But for those with a neurodivergent uh, characteristic like a, um, a diagnosis of autism, it can be even more painfully so. And yet, often they'll have huge amounts that they want to offer and say. And I've talked quite a few times about an example of when I was at Glaxo, where we'd had a team meeting where everyone had stormed away and worked out what the project was going to look like. And I introduced, the, the or I, I gave a, a, um, a moment for one of the people in the room who I knew was autistic, uh, who hadn't said a thing for about two hours to, to just have their moment. And he literally said, well, Ted, if you look at this upside down, I'd do this, 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 and this. And within minutes, we realized that the project was heading in the wrong direction, that he had seen it from a perspective we couldn't, with our standard brain structures, get to. And we created, in the next 30 minutes, the most fabulous new project going forward. Um, And that's all about the tolerance and understanding and thinking about somebody who in that case is neurodivergent, but it could have been that that we were thinking about somebody who needed additional time and space because they were going through brain fog today and tomorrow, but that by Friday they'll be fine. 
Mm. And well, let's let's go to talking about long COVID because that is something mm. that obviously some of these other conditions we know more about, or these there's a long-standing sort of literature or there's societies for long COVID is still relatively new and, and unknown. So what are you seeing in terms of what workplaces will need to do? Uh, and, and what, you know, where are we heading with that? Um, I, th- I think the main thing to say is there isn't a standard answer. Um, it's affecting people in many different ways. But a lot of the links at the moment are being made with um, chronic fatigue syndrome, as it's known, um, and ME. Uh, and, and if you think the majority of people who have long COVID are talking about um, having short breath, um, finding it difficult, for example, to uh, go up steps, to, to walk long distances. They are often hit by brain fog, uh, by dizziness, by chest pain, um, some by tinnitus, you know, so a constant ringing in the ear. Um, and then we've got examples of a chef that six months later still can't taste Um, what he's cooking uh, and has to rely completely on his colleagues, which is a horrendous situation to have got into. Um, So each person is is having to handle and deal with this quite differently. And if if any of you have got somebody who um, has come back to work um, with long COVID, um, I think there's several things to think about. One is to help educate the people around them that this person isn't carrying an active um, uh, virus and is not going to go around infecting everybody because unfortunately one or two people assume that that must be the case oh they're just carrying on having COVID no it's just that COVID has left its mark Um, you need to look sometimes at the physical exercise and constraints of the role that the person's in Um, and one or two people have needed to have quite new roles built for them, suitable alternatives, just to get round uh, that. I I think in the book I talk about uh, a lorry driver. Um, She uh, was finding that she was just getting too tired too quickly or even missing things like a red light um, at a junction. And so she's now been switched to to lighter duties. Flexible work, absolutely key. Um, Things like messaging systems back and forth with line managers to just say, this is not a great moment. This is this isn't going well. But then, for all of us who are in human resources, and I know that's not all of you um, on the call, it, it, but it's something you can challenge in your workplaces, where there are automated sick systems. Um, and if ever you've heard the expression "Bradford Index" being quoted, see if you can just get that knocked on the head, because um, these are these are things that just wind up people who've got hidden or chronic illnesses. Chronic illness is something which is more than a year. That's how it's defined normally. Um, There is no point in in regularly, because of a Bradford index, calling in someone to human resources to say, oh, you've just had the third day off in two months and we need to give you a warning about this. Um, Because they can't do anything about that. That is their life. And in fact, you should have a a completely flexible operating structure that allows them to, to do that. And then some simple things. I'm almost there, Sarah. Um, one of which is to just have something simple like uh, a dedicated uh, rest room somewhere where someone who's got really tired can just go and lie down for a, for a short while, recuperate, and then come back into the workplace um, so that they can they can feel like they're getting over it. The biggest single issue, though, with um, with 
people coming back with long COVID is, and this is the bit that we keep hearing about over here at the UK at the moment, is they try too hard to, to get too quickly back into their full role. And in doing so, they cause themselves more damage. So one of the things that we're insisting on for people who are reporting with long COVID um, is that they, they have an occupational health assessment. And often that will be staged over, even over three months, for example, that you'll start off by just doing Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays if you're doing a five-day week and build up over time. Uh, don't try and rush back in the same way that we would with someone who's had a major operation or um, is coming back from some other um, physical disability. You know, so it's actually think about what we do for people who have a broken leg or a broken arm. Why can't we apply that to people who've got a chronic illness or in this case, COVID? I'm so glad you raised that because it's one of the things I know, you know, having been diagnosed with, with fibromyalgia and even in my recovery of burnout is your constant even though you know you need to recover or you need to make that time to, to be able to get back to your, your kind of levels of performance, whatever that looks like, there's, your society has this real value around being productive and focus and achievement and, you know, doing all these things. And yet when you're in bed and you can't move because you're in a world of pain, it's almost this internal battle between I want to be productive and contribute to society and do work and do all these things, but at the same time, I can't. So it almost there's almost two parts of me, which is, one is providing support for the person to go, yeah, the kind of the mental, you know, psychological safety part of going, it's okay that you're in that right now and, and we don't have those expectations of you and you shouldn't have those of yourself, but also the workplace going, when you are here, we have also made some accommodations for you. But yeah. tell me about that. When you were interviewing people, what were some of the other kind of internal battles that they were struggling with? It, it, it's a great point because um, actually, and, and I haven't mentioned this before up to this point, Quite a few of those people took um, use of their employee advisory resource um, systems or phone lines, which are often um, counsellors or psychologists that are available to help them think through these things. And what the, um, the the psychologists in the UK have been reporting back on recently is that, uh, and the same with the occupational health people, that a lot of their time now is helping people overcome this work ethic um, and become more realistic. And they're, they're having to say things like, sure, you can, you can race at this, but what we've seen in the world of sports um, which is the, probably the closest place we've got to, you know, real fast, proper, decent data, is that those people who've rushed back in have then ended up with, you know, a further six months out. Um, the people who've been brought in on a steady climb have been able to um, recover in half the period of time. So it's about how you manage those expectations and sort those things. And it's basically, it's about giving permission to somebody. Um, and sometimes that needs to be, you know, a counsellor, a, 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 a psychologist. Sometimes it needs to be the line manager, mm. often a combination of all. Um, and it, it's just so important then to keep a monitoring on that. So, for example, I've got a, one of the people who themselves uh were line managing somebody with with long COVID, just said no. And I had to keep doing this. I had to keep going back and saying, it's great that you've completed that first part of the report, but I'm actually disappointed because I know from what I can see of what you've done, you've put in a lot of hours. And I, I want you for the long term, 
I don't want you for the short term. You know, I'm I'm with you. I want to be with you in this organization for the next few years. And I want to see you being promoted and developed. I don't want you to be having to seek suitable alternatives because you can't do it anymore. So please, let's work together on this and be sensible about it. Mm. And I can see actually the way those conversations are so powerful. So my um, executive assistant, she keeps an eye on my diary and she's actually scheduled in rest days. And if I start to book up my calendar too much, she'll be the voice to say, I think you've actually got too much on your plate. And so there's this constant uh, that push and pull between wanting to do lots and then knowing that, yeah, that um, that you do need to take those recovery times. Um, yeah, I was interested in that. So if we go back to the, the, the leaders piece uh, we go back to the people who are listening on the call. What are some of the, the, you know, if they jump off this and think, right, okay, I really want to start doing more in this space and perhaps our wellbeing strategy could be could have be boosted. What are some of the things they can be starting to do? Back, back to an earlier point, I think, which is awareness and education. Um, and I think when I look at the newsletters that you do and the, the information that you swap as a team, I'm really impressed, by the way, with... Uh, how far ahead in New Zealand you are compared to Europe, to America, etc. Uh, I think you're actually setting the gold standard in New Zealand right now for well-being. Um, and it, it's, you know, it, therefore, I, I think I'm preaching to the converted when I say it is about education and awareness. So at the moment, you're, you're all thinking about the well-being program and how can you develop and grow these bits and pieces. Many of you got mental health first aiders. That's something that's moved around the planet now quite effectively. But it's just to say, can we get somebody from um, the the local uh, society um, that is responsible for people who've got this particular illness or disease to just come in and give a little lunchtime seminar? Uh, you may not get that many people at it. You record it. You keep it. And at some point, it will be accessed and used by people uh, because it will build this interest and and development. And I think that's the way I've seen it really starting to take off. The most powerful, though, is when uh, a senior manager or a leader in an organization stands up and says, this is what I've got. And my most recent experience of that and many people don't think of it as, as, as being a hidden disability, but it can be for a while. It's not chronic because it doesn't last forever, but it can um, be quite impactful on people, is menopause. Um, and I was, uh, I was witness to one of the senior managers at an organisation, it's a, quite a big biotech, standing up one lunchtime and just saying, I'm going through the menopause at the moment. This is how it's affecting me. These are the things that happen. Um, uh, My PA is just sat over there. I just want to say sorry. Uh, And then she talked through, you know, some of the things that she knew that she'd done that weren't great as a consequence of, of the menopause and the hormonal effects it was having on her. It led to people then just going, what can we do? We should do more about this. How can we support uh, not just her, but the fact that all the women in this organisation are likely to go through menopause at some stage? Um, and it, and then it led to someone else saying, um, and, and in fact, I did mention this, this a little bit earlier, but um, I've never really wanted to talk about it before, but I have IBS, so that's irritable bowel syndrome. It's why sometimes you'll see me being very careful when we have company events about what I eat and drink. Um, it's why sometimes 
I just can't be in on a Monday uh, or I need to uh, leave a bit early or I need to be careful about what I'm doing, where I'm positioned, etc. I don't want to belittle any particular situation or um, hidden disability or anything like that, but it's just like those things can be so enlightening and then lead to more people talking about them um, in the same way that we've had people stand up and say, this is what depression means for me. It, it means different things for different people, but it starts to educate and, and raise the awareness. And that's going to be the essential thing. And I'm hoping all of you as wellbeing experts can start to just introduce more and more of those opportunities for people to find out and ask questions and understand this. Mm. So it was um, great to hear you say, you know, it has different for different people. And it's certainly, you know, I'm um, part of, you know, Facebook groups and things for fibromyalgia. And my experience of it is completely different to somebody else's, completely different to somebody else's. So the, yeah. the, lead, the lead on question that I wanted to ask you was, you know, what are some of the really good questions that leaders can ask? If, we, if they've got some awareness now, they've got a little bit of an understanding of perhaps what a condition is, but they want to sit down at that conversation with someone. Yeah, what are some of the good questions to make sure that they show they're listening and that they're going to be able to understand that individual's experience? Um, it's just the open questions. So think about open questions. So uh, tell me about. Um, so and and then it, it is the listening that's the most important thing, and then the encouraging, um, and sometimes just asking for further definition so that they can fully understand what it means. Now, some people aren't comfortable. Uh, giving answers to those sorts of questions so it needs to be in a private room it needs to be um, nicely set up in the same way that you would be setting up a performance management discussion so that the individual has got all of the opportunity to just talk through uh, what their needs are but I think the other thing that I say to line managers is it's not just about asking those open questions and never assuming that you know about that disease even if your mum had it you mustn't assume you know anything about it. Just listen to their version of it. Um, it's then to talk to them about how we might involve facilities, IT, human resources, how we might tell work colleagues or not, because it's quite reasonable to say, I only want you as the line manager to know. Um, but then also to be thinking about what practical steps. And I say to the line managers, you should always ensure very soon after that conversation, that at least one practical step is made, even if it's private between you, you and the individual. We want them to know that you took it seriously, you've actually started to act and you're making stuff happen. So that, that way you'll give them the confidence to then be more open about it, to talk about it. Their experience will probably reflect in that they'll say to somebody else, you know, you should talk about yours. Um, he was really good about how he handled it or she was brilliant at how she handled it. And it just leads to that development and growth of confidence and the, the, the realisation that the company isn't just saying it or the organisation isn't just saying it, but they're actually meaning it and they're going to do something about it. Mm. And that's a great segue into um, to Sarah's question that she's got in the chat there, which is you've talked a lot about options for supporting people with a condition. How can we better communicate to the rest of the team what's happening and why? This is the one that most people do find real difficulty uh, with. So what I've said to line managers who've, who've uh, asked this is the first thing to do is not to push this or to press it. Um, you know, it's to be, it's to feel very honoured and special that the person has decided to disclose to you that they have a condition in the first place. And then to to work through that, to show that you have listened by making those little first changes or by offering some flexibility. 
and only then to start thinking about maybe having that conversation about have you have you had the chance to tell any of your colleagues about this? Um, do you think it might be a good idea? I think Claire, for example, is likely to be really helpful and supportive because um, whatever the because is, but it's to just start small and then grow. You know, this is not an email that goes out to the whole company going, ah, she's just disclosed. Um, this, this is about building that confidence, developing it over time, and then it becoming more and more open over time. There are exceptions to this. So I had one of the people I was interviewing um, is an epileptic and um, her biggest concern in disclosing this was whether she'd even get the job in the first place. But the good news was the line manager had a son who's epileptic. So he was absolutely going out of his way to make sure that she got the job. Um, so this is how it can sometimes work in your favour. Um, and she was straight up front um, just saying, as soon as you know, I meet the new team, I'd like you to create the opportunity for me to tell them all about this. And then I want to train them what to do. So if I have a fit, I don't want them... Um, pinning me down or doing this or doing that. I want I want them to just put some cushions around, remove any sharp things that I might bash into when I'm thrashing around because she has thrashing around uh, fits. And of course, each person has their own different version. Um, and I then want to just say to them that I'll probably be out for a day because my brain will be fried uh, by the, the epileptic fit. Um, and the, the manager set that up and it worked perfectly. Now, for, for other things, um, you know, some of the things that people have that, that, they're, that, that they're still embarrassing to talk about, you know, so someone who is urinating a lot or has really heavy periods or has regular diarrhea or is nauseous and actually physically sick regularly because of the condition that they have, still people don't want to talk about these things. Um, so again, it's, it's even more difficult, but I think well worth encouraging and just saying, well, maybe we in the department could talk about several different hidden disabilities and things and just think how we might deal with it. And then once people have shown their colors around this, it might be that we introduce the fact that you do have something like this or that you want to talk about it and just give some examples. And that has worked as a strategy. And what strikes me about the way that that woman was talking about her her epilepsy was that she was quite factual about it and quite upfront about it. And I was reflecting that one of the things, and this again, this is my experience, so not true for everyone with a chronic condition, but one of the things that I strongly detest is if I share that with people or if I say I'm having one of my my days and I'm in bed in pain, it's this kind of this pity, oh, you poor thing, oh, you poor, it's like, I don't want, I'm not, I don't feel sad for myself. I don't, I don't have pity for myself. It's just a thing. It is. I've moved on. So I, yeah. I wonder what what strategies or things you might say around this, instead of yeah that sort of pity and you poor thing and you must be weak and sad to being it's a thing okay so what's kind of some of the messages around that and, and I don't think we can generalize too easily unfortunately because you know this is about each individual and how they talk about it how they raise it how they work on it etc um, by that what I mean is that. There are some people, and I think we probably all know someone like this, 
um, that draw energy out of people because they want to talk about how awful it all is and they want to take them down into that pit of, of despair and they want to talk about every ache and shimmy and bone. And then there are people like you who just want to go, yeah, we've talked about that. I've, I've given you the factual details. Um, if you want to, there's a great website. You can look it up and see a bit more about it. Um, but right now, let's just get on, crack on with this. And the good news is that you know that if I just have a really bad, I'll just message you. I'll let you know I can't be in. Uh, but I'll more than make up for it by working double time the next day or whatever it is you're doing. And that's why we can't prescribe because everybody is going to deal with this differently. I think that's the, that, that's the thing. Um, what we can do, and it's the only way we can really do it, is just give people guidelines and thoughts and ideas about how to get that message across, how to do the education piece, how to engage with people in talking about it without scaring them. Um, so, for example, someone disclosing their epileptic can actually be scary to others in the in the room. You know, like, what if I'm the only one when when the fit occurs? How, how will I personally deal with that? What if she's injured and it's only me that's there? You know, that can be quite scary facilitating that opportunity to talk about that is is what is really then very important. Mm, it's fantastic. And I'm just going to pick up on this, this lead-on question, which is I wonder about IVF adoption as well. Well, it's not a disability. It can require lots of time and support. Did you speak to anyone going through this, Ted? And, yeah, if it's not a, a disability, is there some other language that we can use around that? So, um Interestingly, I've got um, several people I interviewed uh, around IVF and their experiences, um, and they are in the book. Um, and the reason is that it, it, it in a, for them, it is something that they might not describe as a disability, but it certainly stops them from being able to run a normal life. Because if you go through IVF, as they graphically talk through, there are a whole series of steps that you have to undertake to, um, to be ready in the best possible condition for when the, um, the egg is, is coming through, uh, to then be in the clinic at the, exactly the right moment, to be taking a whole load of hormones to get to the perfect condition for when the, um, the impregnated egg is then put back into the, into the body. I mean, I, I was so naive um in my understanding of what IVF was um that you know I was sort of blown away the first couple of conversations I had with people who'd been through it and the complexity of it and the fact that they got their you know uh, they had to have phones that basically were equipped with 38 different types of thing that they were looking at, monitoring, checking, um, bells that were going off to say, this is the moment um, that, that, that you need to get yourself to here, to take that, to drink that, to stab yourself with this needle. So that can be, for that period of time that they're going through IVF, um, is, is effectively as impactful as quite a few of the chronic uh, disabilities that people have. So I think, yeah, it's absolutely important and it's something we should all be mindful of, aware of, learning about in the workplace. I think, too, one of the things that I'm you're really picking up on is just how much it, it's an individual experience for everyone and we can't necessarily, um, you know, generalise, as you said, um, on, on what the answer might be, but actually it's having that approach of the education and awareness and then actually having the conversations and and ideally having others come out and say, look, I have this condition and normalising the, the having that condition and reducing the stigma around that. 
Are there any kind of parting words for the group in terms of thinking about long COVID, hidden disabilities, chronic illnesses that might just help change the dynamic and how we think about well-being at work? Yeah, I think there are. I, th- I think the, um, the the most important thing for a lot of organisations is just how this is dealt with and how it's structured and how it works. And um, if you think about where these things land, sometimes it's with a line manager and if they're ill-prepared or not trained or have no awareness, they can make a right old mess of it. Um, But equally, it can happen in a human resources department um, if you've got the person who's sort of managing the the, the reception desk or the, the admin group equally doesn't understand the works and just wants to talk about, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I hear you. Um, we've got a sick pay scheme. Uh, we'll pay you for the first three weeks. So there's, there's so much work that needs to be done. It's thinking about, firstly, how do you raise the awareness and the, um, uh, the knowledge about how widespread hidden disability is and how many people are neurodiverse in this world to the people who are uh, involved in recruitment, talent acquisition, whatever it's called, um, to the people who are involved in the administration of sick pay and pensions and other systems, making sure that that group of people are right on top of their game um, because that's the starting point for many and then trying to do the work around the um, the other line managers. I think that's the, the sort of the golden nugget piece that needs to be done. Um, and... I think well-being champions can play a huge part in terms of putting pressure on employers to take this seriously, to think about it, to have strategy might be too big a word, but to have a plan of action. You know, so what do we do in the HR team or the payroll team or the finance team or the IT team if someone comes and discloses something? So it could be the IT um, help desk is just getting a request for Oh, please can I have Grammarly. Um, that's a, a, um, a, a proprietary product that helps people with their grammar and their spelling. And it's used heavily by people who are dyslexic and dyspraxic. Um, that person who's dyslexic or dyspraxic might not think of themselves as having a disability and just therefore be going straight through going, is it all right if I load up my version of Grammarly? And the answer may be from IT, absolutely not because it'll compromise the security of our systems and break the firewall and please go away and don't be so stupid. What you want them to be able to do is to go, okay, let's have a chat or I'll escalate this to somebody in my IT team who is knowledgeable and can have that chat and then come and find out what other things we can do to help. You know, and it might be that there's an extra mouse required or a a, a foot device sometimes or a larger screen um, or a different setting. So with dyslexia, it might be that instead of having white screen, um, they're going to have a blue screen for people to work from. So there's always these, it's to think, where's the first touching point? How can we educate and help those people so that they can provide a great first answer when someone discloses or asks one of those questions? I hope that makes sense. It does. I don't think I could sum that up better myself. <laughs> it's been fantastic, Ted. I know that um, I've learned a lot from the, the conversation and it's been really great to be able to understand those things in a much deeper level. Um, and what I would encourage everyone, if they haven't got, had a chance to check out Ted's book, um, how would they find it online, Ted, if they were going to get a copy? Because it's magic in terms of giving really detailed um, suggestions for each of these different conditions. 
Well, because both my boys um, at the time this was published were, um, that's my sons, were living in New Zealand. Uh, the one thing I did want to ensure was that this could be bought in any bookshop anywhere. Um, so um, it is just a matter of looking it up and finding it in one of the bookshops. But if, you, if you're interested in Keen, then please do that. The other bit to say is all of the money goes to a cancer charity called Macmillan. Um, and if ever you have anybody in your organisation that talks about the fact that they've got cancer or that a um, a child of theirs or a partner of theirs has cancer, have a look at the Macmillan website. It has the most ridiculously amazing resources um, on it, um, right down to how do you talk to a young child about the fact that mum's got cancer or how do you break the news to your, uh, to your work boss? Um, how, and then all sorts of very practical things like this is what it means if you have this type of leukemia. So in other words, the doctor has told you something and your job now is to go and find out more. The Macmillan website is amazing. So that's why every penny that is made from selling that book goes straight to Macmillan. I, I, I don't um, take any of that. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, head to rowwellbeing, that's R-O-W-wellbeing.com and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again. And we look forward to catching up with you really soon.